Several journalists and commentators have had the distinction of tipping the card at tri-code race meetings over the years. In 2016, recently retired Queensland race caller Paul Dolan nailed every winner at a Sunshine Coast Gallops meeting. Brian Martin recalls a couple of Victorian journalists having achieved this feat some years ago, and Darren McCauley tells me the same thing has happened in Western Australia. And I can remember a Sydney racing writer, Des Corliss, tipping a Warwick Farm program in the 1960s in the now-defunct Sydney Sun newspaper. Sky Racing harness caller Fred Hastings tipped the card at the Penrith Trots last Thursday night. That was April the 11th. But one thing elevates Fred to a very exalted position in the tipping ranks. This was the third time he's been able to make a clean sweep of a trotting program in Sydney. Freddie, my boy, I'm sure you're the Australian record holder. Congratulations. G'day, John. Yeah, look, that uh, that's quite uh, an achievement when you say it like that. I hadn't really thought about it, but uh, it's not easy to do, and, and I've just been blessed to do it three times. Very lucky. Fred, there will be some who quickly declare that four of the eight winners at Penrith started at odds on, but the other four were at $3.50, $2.80, $5 and $2.60 and it was one of those rare occasions when everything went right. Absolutely. And look, I sort of do get people say, oh, you've tipped a few odds on his, but at the end of the day, John, they've still got to win. Mm. Uh, and as we know, if it was that easy, uh, we probably wouldn't have to go to work for a living. We could just back the odds on favourites, but yeah. uh, they've still got to win. And uh, fortunately, uh, at Penrith on Thursday night, they did. The first occasion on which you tipped the card was at a Menangle meeting on the 20th of February 2016. A very easy one to remember for you because that was your 50th birthday. Yeah, I went to the races feeling a little bit, uh, you know, on a, on a high because it was my 50th birthday and I'd had a lovely uh, day during the course of the, the, the morning and the afternoon and headed to the track, hopefully, you know, tipping a few winners and we kicked it off with uh, the ill-fated Zidana in a heat of the derby and it paid about $5.90 and I thought, gee, that was one of the roughest of my tips all night and as the night unfolded, horses like Smolder didn't let the side down. Uh, it, was a, it was a big night, John, because it was heats of the derby, heats of the Yokes and the Miracle Mile qualifiers, so there was some pretty nice horse flesh on deck and uh, fortunately, coming into the last race of nine, I was on a horse called uh, Our Dream About Me, who has gone on to some uh, great achievements since uh, mm. that uh, particular night. Uh, but uh, she was just being reined up at the 200 metres, and in the call, I thought to myself, don't tell me I've stopped the dollar thirty favourite uh, mm. by tipping it to try and clean sweep the card. But fortunately, yeah. she picked up and got the job done. And your third clean sweep was uh, May of last year at a Bankstown meeting. Yeah, again, uh, there were a couple of uh, shorties in that, but a few that got the, uh, the the job done at you know better than each way, uh, well, one better than each way odds, and, and one that was uh, one or two that were better than even money. So yeah, it was um, it was pretty. I was pretty stoked to to do it the second time, and I can't describe how good it felt doing it on Thursday night. Just gone. Your working life started at age fifteen when you got a salesman's job with Grace Brothers, now known as Maya. And Fred, you rocketed through the ranks and became logistics manager at the Penrith store. 
Yeah, that's right. I, I begged mum and dad to let me leave school because I, I, I just couldn't figure out how algebra was going to help me be a race caller. <laughs> um, and I think I spent, ended up spending in the latter years of my, my high school education more time at a racetrack uh, watching the trots at Richmond and those sort of places. But um, yeah, I, I started at Grace Brothers, uh, started out as a, a stock hand, I guess, uh, putting stock away and putting stock on shelves and um, fortunately, one of the managers saw something in me and um, gave me a chance as a, in a supervisory role. And I ended up working my way through uh, to being the uh, logistics manager at a small store, which was the Mount Druitt store. Mm-hmm. And then uh, through uh, you know good good results in a variety of um, key performance indicators, I ended up being moved to a bigger store, which was Penrith, yep. uh, as a logistics manager. Now, all through those early stages of your life, Thoughts of becoming a caller were pounding in your brain. What was the catalyst that inspired young Freddie Hastings? Where did this love of racing come from? John, I was nine years old and I declared to my parents I was going to be a race caller and they were pretty shocked by that. I, I, um, it, it all pretty much started when mum and dad would paint the house on a weekend. They had a new house and they were painting it and uh, my uncle would come over and he was a bit of a punter. And so naturally enough, on a Saturday, the races would go on and we'd be listening to yourself and, and Bert Bryant and, uh, and I think Vince Curry might have been calling the Queensland races. Because in those days, John, we only bet on Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane pretty much on a Saturday. Uh, unlike we do now with with so many meetings around Australia. But um, just hearing the calls, and and I thought, I could do that. I want to do that. And uh, I drove mum and dad mad. I'd roll marbles down the the hallway. Um, They had a lino floor back then, so the marbles rolled well. I was was buggered once mum got carpet because the marbles (laughs) wouldn't roll. It was a very heavy track. But, yeah, I just always wanted to do it. Um, And I I, uh, immersed myself. One of my jobs was to buy the nightly newspaper from the paperboy, and on a Friday, I'd go out and get Dad the Daily Mirror, mm. but I'd also buy myself the Sun because it had the gold guide, and I'd take the, the paper into my bedroom on a Friday afternoon, and I'd yeah. sit there with a tape recorder, Phantom calling uh, all the winners, and uh, one of the real inspirations, a horse I'm sure you remember, John, well, uh, was a front-running stayer often ridden by Ray Selkrig called Lucky Launching. Oh, yeah. And yep. uh, I, I, he was my favourite horse at the time. I loved that tear-away tactic, and sometimes he kept going, other times he dropped out, but uh, just calling Lucky Launching uh, and those sort of horses uh, in a phantom guise uh, just whetted the appetite for, for hopefully better things. Freddie, I don't know what it is about old race callers, but when you ever hear your horse's name, the colours instantly flash to mind. Mm. And I think Lucky Launching carried green and yellow stripes with red sleeves. I, I don't remember the yellow, but I definitely green and red, and 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 uh, because we we not long had a colour television set at home when we'd see replays and races, and uh, uh, yeah, I remember the green and red. He tear away. He was very hard to catch at Warwick Farm, as I recall, John, a mm. uh, bit the smaller straight. But uh, Rose Hill and Randwick tended to find out uh, lucky launching, but he was a favourite of mine. Trotting fans will remember the Saturday afternoon non-TAB meetings at Nowra where very good crowds would gather to punt on the Metropolitan Gallops and to watch the local trots and this was your first official race calling gig, the Nowra non-TAB trots. How did that happen? 
Well, it came about through uh, the late bookmaker, Tony Gorman. He uh, heard me at Jim Carner's. I was working, uh, well, not so much working, but practising at Jim Carner's uh, at a variety of tracks in Sydney uh, under the, the mentorship of Steve Kahn, who, who covered off all the, the Jim Carner's back in the day. And um, he'd pick me up or I'd get dropped off at, at uh, Jim Carner track and uh, call the, the trials. And in those days, there were plenty of them. And Tony Gorman heard me and uh, through just a, a few, uh, you know, situations that occurred down at Nara, the, the incumbent race caller took ill and they were looking for a replacement and um, I ended up getting the job John and uh, not long after I got the job, non-tab meetings on a Saturday uh, sometimes manifested into tab meetings mm. midweek and uh, I'd, I'd call them for 2KY, this is the pre-Sky days but uh, I'd call them on uh, radio for 2KY. Now those tab meetings which launched your on-air career the very first one could have been a disaster. <laughs> yeah, I recall it well, John. I was so excited about, you know, getting a chance to call a race on air. I'd already called it an official race, uh, but just on track. But this uh, was my first on-air uh, duties. Uh, and I remember the date vividly. It was Friday, June 13. So it was Black Friday, mm. 1986. And um, I picked up the gear. I had to borrow gear. I didn't have my own in terms of the uh, the broadcast gear. So I picked it up from 2KY the day before, uh, got there bright and early, plugged the gear in. And when I rang in the station to check that they had me, they said, nope, we don't have you. And uh, after a bit of uh, back and forwards, I had to run 200 metres each way from the box to the office. And fortunately, in 1986, John, I was a whole lot thinner and fitter than I am now, uh, I was able to do it a few times. And unfortunately, what had happened, they'd booked the line. Telecom had booked the line, as they were known back then, uh, Telstra now, but Telecom booked the line to the Nowra Greyhound track, uh, thinking goodness. that the trots and the dogs were on the one were at the one venue, as mm. they were at many places. But no, Nowra had its own trotting track, and so there was no line. And I thought, here we go. But luckily, uh, some quick thinking uh, from 2KY engineers, they sent the local radio station 2ST out to the track with a box mm. that had a microphone like a CB radio mic and you mm. had to hold the uh, side uh, lever in to talk into it like you were talking into a CB and that's how I called three of the races. I had cramps in the forearms at the end of each race because you had to maintain the, the clasp on this uh, uh, lever to hold it in to talk mm. and uh, what they would then do is that was beamed from the track to the Nowra studio, and they used the line to patch it up to 2KY, and then it went out on air. So yeah. uh, it never nearly happened for me, John. I, I was very excited going there and very despondent at how it all transpired. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, uh, I got a, a few more chances after that. Now, Fred, harness trainers who want to trial horses nowadays have the opportunity to trial them at Menangle between races mm. or at Penrith every second Wednesday night. But in the old days, you know, 40 years ago, maybe a little less, there were Sunday Jim Carners on a regular basis on several different tracks in Sydney. I used to go to them often myself with horses. And Fred, they were a day out for the trotting bloke and his wife and kids. He'd take half a dozen horses to Fairfield or Granville or whatever the case might be. If you had uh, uh, horses in the first and last trials, you could be there from 11.30am till 6 o'clock at night. They were monstrous things. 
Absolutely. Well, just on Fairfield, they they used to have their gym calendar on the first Sunday of each month, and nothing unusual to have 25 to 30 uh, trials in the course of that day. Mm. Um, you know, and then you had Bankstown on the second Sunday. They they might have had 20 to 25. Uh, then you had Granville on the third Sunday. Uh, Penrith used to trial on the third Sunday at night under lights. Mm. And then Little Blacktown, the showground there at Blacktown uh, on Richmond Road, they used to have about anything from eight to, to 14 trials on that little tight-turning track at, at Blacktown. So uh, it was it was full-on back then. And these days, you, you, whilst the trialling is, is less, you, you don't have as many of, uh, many of them. Mm. You might get five or six between races at Menangle. In those days, as you say, it was a day out. You'd get there bright and early. You'd leave late. There'd be, uh, you know, food vans open, and it was a real day out. Fairfield, especially, I've got fond memories of calling there. In 1985, you were delighted to be offered the job at the very popular Richmond Trots, and uh, gee, a lot of people uh, really enjoyed harness racing on the big grass track. Uh, it was Sydney's only grass track venue. Ray Conroy would handle the 2KY commitment and you were on the public address. How long did that go for? A couple of years, John. Um, I, I actually picked that um, job up, um, and, and it was a, a case of I was initially doing on course, and then uh, Sky Channel started covering their, their meetings. And um, But it was, it was a real thrill going there. Unfortunately, I never got to call on the track when they raced right-handed mm. um, on the grass. By the time I'd uh, come along, they'd uh, reverted to left-handed racing, and the, the home straight was a lot smaller. But there was something picturesque about and there still is. I can watch the New Zealand races on the grass and when uh, Orange race uh, in February at Tauak Park. There's something really picturesque about the harness horses on the on the grass and I was very lucky to have a, a, a about five or six year stint doing that before they ended up folding in 1998 uh, and ended up uh, converting the trotting track to uh, incorporate part of the, the the Greyhound track there at Richmond. But it was a it was a real fun time and I, I had to take a few um days in lieu from my my day job uh maybe a few times i might have uh, phoned in a little unwell to make sure i could get to the races <laughs> uh, i can say that now because i haven't been with grace brothers for a long time but uh, if any yeah. my old bosses are what are listening uh yeah I, I might have fudged a few sick days john just to get to the richmond trots on a tuesday afternoon <laughs> in 1991 mm-hmm. 2ky's rod fuller was instrumental in getting you on the air, helping out with reams of tote fluctuations that had to be broadcast for many meetings. Pretty tedious stuff. Yeah, Rod uh, rang and said we're, we're looking for someone to learn the ropes in the studio reading you know, tote calls and um, maybe one day learning how to coordinate the racing. Um, are you interested? And I thought, well, I really want to be a race caller, but I thought, well, you've got to get your foot in the door. Uh, so I, I gladly accepted um, that offer, and uh, over a period of about four years, I'd, I did a variety of roles there, uh, from tote calling to uh, offsiding with Ian Craig, which was a big thrill at the, at the racetrack, mm. uh, doing tote calls there on a Saturday. But uh, eventually, I, I was uh, taught how to do the coordinating, actually driving the ship, so to speak, uh, and crossing to the racetracks and playing ads and giving dividends and all that sort of stuff. And um, fortunately, after about four years of doing that uh, pretty much two, three times a week at night, mm. um, I got a full-time offer from 2KY. Right. And now, you did that for seven years, the nighttime coordination. 
I did it for a few years. Um, I did it for about four years, and then when I got mm. the full-time job, I was employed as their nighttime man to, yeah. to do all the greyhounds and harness racing. And after about six months, there was an internal change. Uh, that the, the incumbent day, co- uh, day coordinator, Steve Cairns, had left to go to Melbourne. So uh, Matt Browning went from nights to days, and then I took over nights. Well, after six months of doing the nights, Matt Browning uh, went to Sky Channel. Mm. And uh, Barry Unsworth, the former Premier of New South Wales, was the, the GM at the time. And he said, uh, well, you've been doing the six months. You've been doing all right. We'll give you the days. And I, I all mm. of a sudden was elevated into the daytimes, Monday to Friday, uh, coordinating all the racing from around Australia. It was a big thrill at the time, but I even got to put a few Melbourne Cups to wear. Mm. I thought about insuring my left finger, John, just to make sure nothing <laughs> happened to it so I could put the... No, but no, it was a big thrill and, and uh, having done that for about five years that just led to other op- opportunities yeah. like uh, greyhound calling and and uh, i ended up doing nearly every job at the station at, at various points it's good times all round at harness racing across new south wales as the state's finest horses and drivers go wheel to wheel with something for everyone a trip to the trots is the perfect place to take family and friends it's easy affordable and action-packed so get down to your local track and experience it firsthand. Get all the info at harnessmediacentre.com.au and we'll see you at the track for good times all round. 2003 was a very significant year in the Fred Hastings story. Sky Channel purchased the radio station from its long-time owners, the Trades and Labour Council. What did this mean to you? Well... At the time, John, I was doing, um, I think, one Greyhound meeting on a Monday night and I was doing four days of coordinating and the then general manager of uh, Sky, Brendan Parnell, um, offered me a position where I would become Paul Ambrosoli's understudy at the Greyhounds. I'd been calling Greyhounds at Richmond at, at that stage for about 13 years and uh, I was offered the position as, as his understudy, but because there wasn't necessarily enough shifts uh, to, to facilitate a, a full-time understudy. He offered me the position as program um, coordinator, which mm. later became program manager. So I had to virtually go back into a managerial type capacity, uh, but call one meeting a week, maybe yeah. if Paul went on holidays, maybe three or four and juggle all the, the managerial duties. So it was mm. uh, that happened for about six years and at times it was quite challenging. You had a production involvement in those days with the long-running Big Sports Breakfast and you worked on that drive-time show hosted by a young fellow called Greg Radley. Yeah, well, with Greg, I was uh, – well, he – by that stage, John, he'd actually switched to Racing Radio Morning, so I was involved with, with both Racing Radio Morning uh, in, a, in a, I guess, a, a managerial capacity mm. and uh, the Big Sports Breakfast – um, I had uh, done a stint of actually hosting Racing Radio Morning uh, when Greg had actually uh, moved to another radio station for a short period, and I also filled in on Big Sports Breakfast as a host. So um, all of a sudden, I'd uh, launched into this managerial position, and uh, I have to say, I, I wasn't fond of it. Mm. I wanted to be a race caller. Yeah. You got to work with a couple of your heroes at 2KY back in those days, and I'm sure they were always available for consultation and any advice that you may have been seeking. And I refer to Paul Ambrosoli, whose name you've already mentioned, 
and the great Ian Craig. Yeah, look, they were terrific. I remember the very first night I called my my first official Greyhound meeting. I didn't have a stand with me because I wasn't expecting to be calling the full meeting. The, the incumbent caller that was calling on track took six. So Paul went down to his car before the first, ran back up the stairs and said, here, use this, use this stand. You need a stand, you know, and he, mm. he, he and, you know, watch the dog on the outside. If it gets, if it's close, it's probably one, you know, and he was giving me bits of advice on the runners only Paul can do. Mm. Um, but he was very, very good to me. And, and Ian Craig was a, was a, a long time idol and, and, John, he he was um, he, he did something the very first time I worked with him. I was as nervous as a kitten going to Rose Hill to work with him. And mm. from the time he pulled up in the car park to the time we got to the box, every person that said "G'day, Ian," he'd say "G'day," and then stop and introduce me to them as his offsider. Yep. yep. Uh, and, and by the time I got to the box, I actually felt like I was part of the furniture because Ian made it a point of telling everyone, mm. "This is my offsider for the day." And it just it just relaxed me. Uh, he was very very good to me that day, and and very good to me since. And uh, it was a pleasure working with him and alongside him for so many years. Very thoughtful man. Absolutely, he he made sure he must have sensed I was nervous. Um, I don't think I slept a wink the night before, and I and I was so nervous working with the great Ian Craig. I, I think mm. I was even physically sick. <laughs> um, the morning of, thinking, how, oh, how am I going to do this? But when, I, when we pulled up in the car, whether it was Kevin Moses who got out of his car and or Bill on the gate or, mm. or Joe, the race book seller, he stopped and introduced me to them and, and just totally relaxed me. It was a very wonderful gesture from him and I'm very grateful for it because it relaxed me to the point where I was able to do my job and, uh, and do it okay. 2009 was the year that saw you finally assume a full-time role as a harness racing caller on Sky Radio and Sky TV. Menangle had been in operation for a year and the 2009 Miracle Mile was the first to be decided on the new track. Now, to mark the occasion, they invited a host of callers from all over Australia to participate on that day. Who were there? Well, what they did, John, they decided that people that had called Miracle Miles at Harold Park should be involved in the day. So they invited David Morrow, who called plenty of uh, Miracle Miles for ABC TV. And then they had Ray Hadley, a well-known broadcaster, who uh, at one time was calling for Sky, the Harold Park meetings. Um, Mm. They had Hilton Donaldson, who also had that role, uh, calling the trots for Sky. And then there was Kevin Thompson, who had called 30-odd Miracle Miles, uh, myself. And the Miracle Mile that year, they gave it to uh, Greg Radley to call, and he called the first Miracle Mile at Menangle, which was won, of course, by Monkey King. So it was a host mm. of callers. We all did a, a race. I, I did a couple, um, and Kev did a couple, but uh, the other boys did one race each, and uh, it was lovely to, to catch up with some of those blokes uh, that I hadn't seen in some cases for a couple of years, uh, people like David Morrow. It was really good to catch up. Your first actual Group 1 call was the Truer Memorial at Bankstown won by that marvellous old campaigner, Washaki, who went on to win that race five times. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah, uh, a week after that miracle mile won by Monkey King, um, the Truer Memorial at Group 1 level at Bankstown was run on a Saturday night and Washaki won it and beat a pretty good field. You had Smoke and Up was in it. I think Blacks a Fake was in it. There was a number of top horses and Washaki beat them and beat them fairly and squarely. And then, lo and behold, the next uh, four runnings after that, 
he won it again. So five Group 1s. Mm. Um, the race is now run at Group 2 level, but, but back then it was Group 1, and Washaki won them. And uh, very easy to remember who won uh, my first Group 1, John, because he won it won him a, a yeah. few times after that. 2010 saw your first Miracle Mile call. It was the first of two wins in the race for Smoking Up, and he beat Blacks of Fake on the occasion of your maiden call. Yeah, I remember it well, and, and part of the reason I remember it is because they've hit the line lock together. Um, the pressure of calling my first Miracle Mile, it, it sort of didn't phase me at the time, and I plonked for Smoking Up winning it by a nose, and I think the official margin was a half ahead, but uh, mm. he, he won it, and I thought, gee, did I just go for a horse in a photo finish in a Group 1 Miracle Mile to win by half ahead? Boy, that was either brave or stupid. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> fortunately, John, I got it right, and uh, he was a great horse at Menengel Smoking Up and, of course, became the first horse at that track to uh, lower the, the magical 150 mark. It's well documented that Blacks of Fake won a record four Inter-Dominions, and mm. his fourth was Fred Hastings first? Yeah, the uh, the end of Dominion, uh, I, I remember it well. There was a lot of pressure coming into the race because he was looking for his fourth. I was calling my first. Uh, there was a, a lot of uh, New Zealand representation, as is uh, normally the case in a Miracle Mile, and uh, Blacks are fake won it. A few people said to me, oh, what are you going to say if he wins? Uh, you've got to have something up your sleeve if he wins, and I've mm. always tried not to have anything preemptive, John, because as you well know, I'm sure through your career, sometimes you might want to say something and if the race doesn't go to plan, mm. you're sort of left floundering, wondering what you're going to say because you can't use the line you are going to use. That's right. So I try not to have anything up my sleeve or prepared or preemptive, but I thought for that one I wouldn't. I, uh, I, I uttered the lines, uh, he races into inter-dominion immortality mm. um, and... Uh, I only came up with that probably probably on the way to the track. Um, mm. What will I say if he, he does win four? Because it is pretty special, and that was what I came up with, uh, you know. And uh, but outside of that, I try not to have anything too well prepared because, as I said, you just may not get to use it, and it just could cause you some problems uh, trying to spit out the uh, the names in the last uh, hundred metres of a race. Your favourite call of a harness race to date was your description of the 2013 Inter-Dominion Grand Final, mm. won by that mighty little horse, I'm the Mighty Quinn, who beat Marsish and Excel Stride. Few Inter-Dominion winners have dominated a race the way he did that day, Fred. He came from a mile back and produced an astonishing sprint at the end of 3,009 metres. Yeah, he, uh, he he was really suited to the track, wasn't he? His style of racing, and uh, he, he let down with a brilliant turn of foot, I recall. And uh, it was one of those races where there was a bit of pressure because it was the first of the new way of running the, uh, the Inter-Dominion. Of course, uh, uh, Menangle had the rights to the uh, Inter-Dominion for three years, and that was the first time that they'd more or less tinkered with the format, and they ran heats at various centres around New Zealand and, uh, and Australia. Mm. Um, so it was a different kind of Inter-Dominion. It garnered free-to-air television coverage on Nine's Wide World of Sports for the first time in a in a long time. So all of a sudden, it was a very big audience, and I and I was uh, the one that had to deliver it. And uh, uh, fortunately, uh, it all came out okay. I was very happy with the call, and. Um, I rate that as probably one of my best big race calls because there was a little bit of extra pressure, but uh, he made it. Uh, the way he finished the race off, I'm the mighty Quinn, and uh, it just all came out okay. 
He was a plain little fella. He raced 111 times. He won 58 of 111, 34 placings, 4.5 million in prize money. Fred, equate that to thoroughbred prize money. Well, you know, when you look at it, when you look at what Winx has won, and uh, you know, we've just seen her finish her career. It, it's uh, it's it's an incredible purse for a harness horse. Mm. Um, you know, quite incredible. He ended up ended up being uh, credited with two um, inner dominions or three inner dominions three. because of yeah. the three, yeah, because of the uh, the uh, the DQ in New Zealand for for smoking up. So he was a mighty horse. Um, and sometimes I wonder whether you know it, it was a shame. He lived on the other side of the country, John, because I'd love to have seen a bit more of him at the big roomy expanses of Menangle. He was a mm. gun at Gloucester Park, and he was a gun at most tracks he raced at. But, gee, I got the impression Menangle was a track right up his alley. Put on for him. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I guess that, that the way he won that Inter Dominion in 2013 um, is testament to that. The way, yeah. the way the race was run and the way he got to the outer extremities, and he just launched. And uh, mm. it, was a, it was a mighty performance that day. Now, two of your four Inter-Dominions were won by another super horse, Bowtide. Over the long trip, 3,009 metres, he rated 55.8 or 55.5 the first time, 55.8 mile rate the second time. Astonishing. It's incredible that he ran those times. And this is a horse that also had won a miracle mile. Uh, He burst on the scene. Uh, James Rattray managed his career so well. And I can remember... He won a race at Menangle leading into uh, the Miracle Mile, and I actually said in commentary, uh, look out, this horse could be headed to the Miracle Mile. It was only a, I think it might have only been an M- M1 and better or something. It, it was a mm. fast-class race, but he just had that turn of foot, John. And as as you well know, whether it's you know gallopers or harness horses, that acceleration, when you see that trademark acceleration, you know they've got something a little bit better than than most, and he, he just accelerated away from the field in a in a restricted or a, or a lower grade race at Menangle, and I I uttered the words, I you know he could be miracle mile band, and I, it drew a fair bit of criticism from a few people who thought I must have been uh, on the wacky weed in the broadcast box. <laughs> <laughs> they said, "You idiot! What are you saying? You know he's only he's only won four straight or something, but he went on to win the Newcastle Mile, which was a qualifier for the um, for the Miracle Mile that year, and he ended up winning the Miracle Mile, but but back to the end of Dominion to, to run those times, John, yeah. uh, over the distance, uh, quite incredible. He was a he was a very good athlete. You're a regular at the Penrith and Bankstown meetings on the half mile tracks, where they now run times undreamed of ten years ago. Six of the eight winners at Penrith on Thursday night went under two minutes. One of them, Arctic Stride, went one fifty seven point seven. Fred, I'm not kidding. Ten years ago, if you had a horse draw barrier one or two and if it looked as though he could lead, uh, he was nearly as special if he could run two, two or two, three. Mm. It's been incredible. The evolution of, of, I think, track management, John, and the surfaces and then, of course, the uh, the breed. Uh, it's just made these times possible. And you see, as you say, you know, many, many weeks at Penrith, you, you might get nearly every race where they've run under, you know, two minutes. Um, I think the record there is now is now 153 or 154, three or something there at Penrith. I mean, mm. that's ridiculous on that little track, but, but that's the sort of times that these horses can run now. We've got, of course, the Renshaw Cup, the flagship race for, for Penrith coming up soon. Um, 
and the time that they could run there is is, is quite astonishing because mm. the, these horses just seem to be able to keep going mm. uh, at that one bat and then still have a bit of acceleration to, to, to you know, put fast time on the clock. And that's the difference mm. these days with, I think, as I said, the track management, the surface, the breed of the horse. You know, fast times are now just the, the norm. I mean, the trials at Menangle, you, know, you see horses trialling at Menangle and they're running 153. For goodness sake! So yeah, yeah. it's quite quite incredible just uh, how how good these tracks are now. You've observed all of Sydney's best trainers and drivers in the last decade, and mm-hmm. you've settled on a few favourites. Yeah, look, I'm a big fan of Luke McCarthy. I think uh, in terms of the Sydney driving ranks, uh, I think Luke is is something special. I will say uh, that his brother Todd, I think is uh, destined for greatness. I think he is an incredibly talented driver, particularly uh, very good in front, a very good front-running driver. But other drivers that I, I pay tribute to uh, uh, nationwide, drivers like Gary Hall Jr. and uh, and, and Chris Alford's a supreme uh, horseman. And as far as trainers, I'm a big fan of Blake Fitzpatrick here locally. Uh, what he's done with the trotters, mm. Johnny, he, he just wins trotters races uh, hand over fist. He's a very good uh, conditioner of, of, of horses, but he's got his trotters going well. And I think the best anywhere for me is Mark Purden. I think he is a master trainer, uh, a brilliant horseman, and uh, he rates as one of my uh, all-time favourites. Fred, been great catching up on the podcast. Congratulations again on that wonderful tipping effort at Penrith, April 11, the third occasion on which you have made a clean sweep of a trotting program here in Sydney. You've come a long way in a short time, Fred. You have emerged as the undisputed voice of harness racing in the the state of New South Wales. Keep up the good work and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, John. It's been a real privilege being on the podcast. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. It's good times all round at Harness Racing across New South Wales as the state's finest horses and drivers go wheel to wheel. With something for everyone, a trip to the trots is the perfect place to take family and friends. It's easy, affordable and action-packed, so get down to your local track and experience it firsthand. Get all the info at harnessmediacentre.com.au and we'll see you at the track for good times all round.